This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching here at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. It's the basis for the sermon here at First Free Methodist Church on August 13, 2023. It's the final message in our series called Serve the World, as we explore a healthy and mutual life of mission. Now, this particular text we're looking at today from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23 is a Uh, a text that uh, I preached on and we shared together here at First Free back on April 16 of this very year, just hardly even, uh, not even six months ago. But we're looking at a different emphasis in this text. So we're reading this text uh, in a different light than we did back in the month of April. And so let's hear the text from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. I'm reading from the 2020 revision of the New American Standard Bible. The text tells us this. Now, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and the disciples were together due to fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And when they had said, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now to put the story in its broader context, this is, of course, Jesus making his first post-resurrection appearance to his disciples on the evening of that very first evening, very first Easter Sunday. Now they've gathered together out of fear for the same authorities that arrested and tried and ultimately executed Jesus. Perhaps they're fearful of being accused of stealing his body from its grave, who knows what, but they They've gathered in fear. They're cloistered together. And so they're in this room that they've gathered in. Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his feet. Now we know from the story, there were 10 of them there. Of course, Judas is long gone from uh, this particular scene. The uh, uh, disciple Thomas happens to not be there. And We'll turn in this same chapter later to when Jesus appears, when Thomas is present, but he's not there now. So out of 12 disciples, Judas is gone, Thomas is gone, and so there's just 10. So this conversation that takes place, though, is not just for those 10. We know from reading through the rest of this gospel and others that there were more people there than just 10 of them. And it's important for us to recognize that the message Jesus gives those disciples gathered in that room, 10 plus, that that message isn't just for them, that this particular story is not just for them. Why else would John have included it in his gospel if it was only for them? There are implications for us too. 
Now, in reading this story in a different light than we did back in April of this year, we're reading it for its um, kind of missional lens or the way in which Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go forth as part of a mission movement. And that's different than how we read this text back in April where we were focused more on the the resurrection and this post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. When we read verse 21, if we can skip down to that verse, Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you, just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, this word for send is an important word. Uh, It's a Greek word, apostello, and we get the word apostle from this very word. The word apostle literally means to be sent with a commission. It's not just being sent. There's a different Greek word for that, pempo. Apostello is the word meaning to be sent to carry out a mission or sent with some kind of commission. And it's different from the Greek word for disciple, which is mathetes. And that word means a a follower, a committed adherent. So there's a reorientation happening in this text. They're, They're not so much being understood by Jesus as disciples or followers only. They're now being understood as the sent ones, literally the apostles. Well, how are they sent? How are they sent forth in this work? Jesus tells them, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So this this language here about just as the Father sent me, so how is it that Jesus sent the Father? Well, if we look throughout John's gospel, this is a common theme where Jesus talks about being sent from the Father. He tells us many times that he and the Father are one. He says in other places in the gospel, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. This is kind of a recurring theme in John's gospel. So when we get to this 20th chapter of the gospel, this language shouldn't surprise us, except that Jesus is now not only talking about how God has sent him, but now he's telling the disciples how he is sending them forth in the very same way. Now, what's important to recognize when Jesus talks about being sent from God that Jesus is not necessarily in a subservient role to the Father. We really need to understand this more in terms of our theology of the Trinity, that he's in mutual submission to the Father, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working together in harmony and mutual submission to one another. It's a a dance, if you will, between the members of the Trinity, Trinity as they move and work together. Now, there's also a cultural component of this that we need to hear, that the Father has sent me, so also I send you. That in the ancient world, especially in this first century world, sons followed the trade of their father. This was the cultural norm of the day. So remember, there are no universities, there are no trade schools, there are no other avenues of development. It was quite unusual for a son to grow up in a household and to take on a different vocation than their fathers. Men did what their fathers did. And in this patriarchal world, of course, women did what their mothers did. The goal here was to reduplicate the work and even grow the work of their father. So if the, the father was a uh, carpenter, in the case of Jesus' um, uh, uh, adopted father, Joseph, It would have been Jesus's work to continue to be a carpenter and to improve and expand upon his father's work. And then, of course, hypothetically, if Jesus were to have had children, then Jesus would have expected his sons to do the very same thing. But Jesus defines his role to the father in the same kind of cultural lens. 
Jesus' work is to perfectly reflect that of the Father. And so our work is then to perfectly reflect that of Jesus. And then right after Jesus says these words to them, how he's sending them, it says when he had said this, he breathed on them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is such an important part of this story that verse 21 of being sent the same way the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus is sending the disciples forth now as apostles. Jesus now speaks of their capacity to do that. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The capacity to do what Jesus has said is impossible on human effort. This idea of breathing on them is so important because in John's gospel, from beginning to end, it reflects a Jesus that perfects what was lost in creation. So there's lots of parallels in John's gospel and the creation story in the book of Genesis. So what was lost in Genesis, somehow Jesus reclaims what is lost. Notice how the John, John's gospel begins. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It mirrors the very beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's lots of these parallel languages, and here the breathing is important because it talks about in, in uh, Genesis, of course, of how God breathed life into Adam when he was created, and humankind came into being through breath. And so the idea of Jesus breathing on them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit is in parallel and much with what we read in the book of Genesis. It's, it's designed in every way to redeem Genesis in the story that's there of what humankind lost, Jesus reclaims. But he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit, of course, is what Jesus talked about earlier in the Gospel of John when he talked about how there would be this helper or a counselor who would come. That Greek word for the helper, the counselor, is parakletos, and it has to do with this one that comes alongside, if you will. But the, the language here is artful in that when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, the word for spirit in Greek, panuma, is the exact same word for breath and wind. They're the same word. So the, the parallel of Jesus breathing on them and thus receiving the Holy Spirit they, there's a linkage in terms of how this breath or wind or spirit begins to move. And it really is this supernatural capacity Jesus is bestowing on the disciples to do the very work and will of God. In other words, the apostolic mission that now the disciples are being given depends on them receiving the breath of life through the Holy Spirit to do what God calls them to do. The Spirit is what animates this work. And it opens up a key passageway for us, that the Spirit is God's gift to empower the whole church. Jesus breathed the Spirit on the ten gathered there, and we assume it had been, we assume it has been breathed on all believers. So Pentecost, of course, will be the punctuating experience of this truth, and that day would occur 50 days later. So to be sent by Jesus as Jesus was sent by the Father will require the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus is now in us. Knowing how the Spirit gives us life and leaning into that space are so critical. 
We need to catch that breath. And the need to catch that breath is universal. We all need it. This means everybody in the body of Christ, every single believer has a mission. We are all missionaries in one form or another. If we have the spirit, we have a mission. We turn now to verse 23, where Jesus says something that's important. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. This verse is one of the most cryptic and confusing in the entire Gospel of John. There's mountains and mountains of literature written by theologians and scholars trying to understand exactly how Jesus is explaining this truth in verse 23. It seems on the surface that Jesus gives the disciples there the power to forgive and to retain forgiveness. But if we take a closer look at the grammar and a closer look at the context, that conclusion may not be as true as we think. The key here to understanding verse 23, in my opinion, is the verb tense. In other words, when the action of the verb in verse 23 is happening. And what I mean by that is this. Look at the part of the saying where Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Focus on that have been forgiven and have been retained part. In the Greek language that John has written in, this is what's called the perfect tense. It's completed action in the past. It's not past action that's ongoing. It's action that has started and ended in the past. It's complete. So in what the disciples are told to proclaim or announce is the reality if this has been done or not. So let me try to outline this a little bit more. It's unclear from the text exactly when the forgiveness happened. We just know it happened and was completed in the past. So other than knowing it's in the past, we don't know much. I'd also say that it's unclear then who does this forgiving since it was not done by the disciples themselves. Because if, if the, the forgiveness happened in the past, that means the disciples are not the one who actually did the forgiving. And third, it's unclear what the disciples do in relationship to this forgiveness. If you read it on the surface, it sounds like they forgive people uh, in, some, in an act that somehow happened in the past. So this is part of the confusing part. How can the disciples do something in the present that has already happened in the past? So many, many scholars believe that the disciples, of course, do not have the power to forgive or retain sins. But what these same scholars do is they assert the authority of the disciples in proclaiming forgiveness, that there's a way in which the disciples can proclaim that people have received forgiveness, and they can also proclaim that people have not received forgiveness. You know, this interpretation for me works well with other descriptions of the disciples' work. So what becomes clear is that the disciples, regardless of the interpretation, they have a role to proclaim. They may not dispense judgment, 
But what they do dispense is a state of being, forgiven, not forgiven. And for me, this opens up a final key passageway if we lean into this interpretation just a little bit more. That our work is, as the body of Christ, witness and proclamation, not judgment. There is something mutual about this work, that we have the authority to proclaim Christ, but we do not have the authority to judge like Christ. Being a witness of Jesus in every way is the essence of our mission. And should people choose not to repent, well, obviously they can choose not to repent. And so with that in mind, our proclamation is focused on a couple of things. One, it's focused on the sacred potential of every human life, that every human life is sacred and it has sacred potential. And the way in which it moves from that sacred being to sacred potential is through sacred choice. The capacity of human beings either to receive the forgiveness and reconciling love of God through Jesus Christ or to not receive the forgiveness and reconciling love of God through Jesus Christ. What we can state clearly is what we know about how forgiveness is accessed, how we experience forgiveness, keeping in mind that we don't actually forgive. Now, that's careful language. We don't actually forgive. The forgiveness of God flows from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God is the one who does the forgiving our role is its proclamation. If you have comments and reflections, I'd love to hear from you. Please visit my website, revcraig.com. You click on news in the upper right-hand corner, and then you'll see a drop-down menu with the word podcast on it. Click that, and then you'll find a list of all the podcast episodes, and click on this week's episode and leave a comment. I'd also encourage you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.